What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Morgan, John, thank you very much. And live from NASDAQ, the market site in the heart of New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. And here is what is on tap. Rate shock, the 10-year roaring higher. Now at nearly 4.5%, why this massive move is sending shockwaves through the market. Plus, prime problems, and we're not talking Deion Sanders. Mm. Uh, we're talking Amazon, having a week to forget. The stock down nearly 10%. Should the rest of tech fear that they will get whacked next? And later, will Cisco's $28 billion deal for Splunk kick off a corporate wedding frenzy? Our traders set to play matchmaker from some deals about some deals they think might make sense. Welcome, everybody. I'm Tyler Matheson in tonight for Melissa Lee, coming to you live from Studio B at NASDAQ. And on the desk tonight, Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, Guy Adami, and Michael Kantopoulos, Director of Fixed Income at Richard Bernstein Advisors. A lot to talk about there. But we start with that great rate rise, the 10-year yields climbing within one basis point of the key 4.5% level, trading at their highest levels now uh, since late 2007. The rally even more dramatic when you consider that yields were at 3.4%, a full percentage point lower just a couple of months ago in May. Two-year yields also marking a milestone, touching 5.2% for the first time since 2006 before they pulled back. Longer-term 30-year treasuries rose by 15 basis points, their biggest one-day jump since June of last year. Oh, boy, the data just keeps on coming. The latest move coming after lower-than-expected jobless claims backed up by the belief that the Fed would raise its interest rate target at least one more time. Those fears also sent stocks down for a third straight day. Major indexes closing at their lows of the day. The S&P and NASDAQ at their worst closes since June. The Dow since July. So do these moves suggest that equities have put in their peaks for the year? I have just been talking for about three minutes. That's, that's enough. Right, Karen? What do you yes. think? Have we seen the highs of the year for the Dow? I'm going to guess uh, yes, we have. But that doesn't, there's still room now, though, for the market to go up between where the highs were and where we are now. So I'm always optimistic. I'm always long. Day like today, that's really not a good place to be. I have some hedges in place. But we've talked a lot about rates driving everything, rates driving the market, and, and how we've seen just you know a major shift in interest rates. And yesterday didn't help, obviously, with the Fed saying, nope, we don't expect cuts. You're way off. You know, we're taking 50 basis points of cuts off the table. That obviously didn't go over well. But uh, I, the economic data today, as you said, a little bit hot. Uh, Could have used something a little bit cooler. But I think this is sort of follow through from yesterday. Like, oh, my God, we got an enormous debt problem and we got an enormous interest rate. Dan, problem. you bet I had your eye on NASDAQ. What do yeah. you think is going to happen there? How does this play out? How, do we, are we in, in, at the beginning 
uh, of, a, of, a ma of a somewhat major decline here? I, I think it could be. I mean, I think about the leadership, right? And so we know that Microsoft, Apple, these, these two stocks make up 20-some percent of the NASDAQ 100. Uh, Tyler, that's an index of 100 stocks. That's 100. So two of them make up nearly a quarter no. of the weight, okay? And if I look at both of those, and they're both down about 11% from their all-time highs made in the summer. They've broken some technical support. They're above the trend lines that have been really methodical at a 45-degree basis since their lows um, early this year. And I think you got to look towards the leadership a little bit. So that does exist in the NASDAQ 100. It's also where a lot of that positive sentiment in and around AI has lived in those mega cap tech stocks. So if that's kind of coming out of the market a little bit, then it brought then I start saying, OK, how is that equal weight S&P looking? Well, it's basically flat on the year. How's the Russell 2000, right? A bit more economically sensitive, more uh, sensitive to tighter credit, that sort of thing. Well, that's flat on the year. So we're seeing some things under the hood across at least the stuff that I'm looking at that has been deteriorating. And it reminds me a bit of late 2021, where the major indices kept on making new highs, despite a lot of stuff under the hood not acting particularly well. And I think that's going on right here. So again, I'd say look to the leadership. Some of these technical levels are being violated here. And then ultimately, I just think with valuations, um, they're too high relative to where rates are and where I think a lot of folks are going to be more comfortable about where rates are going to basically, I don't know if you want to call it plateau, but find some sort of baseline in this near-term economic future. Guy? People watching the same way saying that's good news on the jobs front. Why is the market down? Because good news is bad news in today's world. That's just the way it is. And at a certain point, bad news is going to start to be bad news as well. So Karen's always optimistic. I love that about her. I am not. I was born in the Wall <laughs> Street. I love that Karen about you. Wrong and we love that about you. No, yeah. but, it's, you know, but that's just the way markets work. But I'll say this on the optimistic side. Where we stopped today in the S&P is exactly where we topped out at in August of last year. So past resistance becomes support. That's a good thing. Here's the bad news. And we've been saying this for a while. At a certain point, higher interest rates are going to matter. And they're mattering today for whatever reason. Today was some line of demarcation that we went through. And rates aren't going to stop. And if rates start going back down, you have to ask yourself, why are they going down? And they, in my opinion, the only reason they will go down is because the stock market is selling off and there'll be some perverse flight to quality in the form of bonds. Let me ask you, and then I'm going to ask you, Michael, where you think the 10-year yield tops out for this cycle. I think is it, it above 5%? I, I know about 5%, but it's somewhere between 480 and 5%. I mean, we have broken out now. You mentioned it. These are levels we last saw 17 years ago. I mean, you can say what you want about the bond market. It's clearly telling a story. Karen talks about this all the time. It's not just about um, rates and where they're going in the Fed. It's about supply and demand. It's about the market is demanding a higher yield to buy our debt. Rightly so, by the way. The market is finally starting to call BS on an economy that has a debt to GDP approaching 140 percent. By the way, if you don't know, that's the United States. That's the United States. <laughs> Let's turn to you. I'll ask you, Michael, the, 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 the same question. Where do you see the 10-year topping out for this cycle? And then we'll get into some more sort of substantive things. Yeah, absolutely, Todd. I mean, I think the 10-year could get to 5%. That wouldn't shock me one bit. But remember, you're earning 4.5% on the 10-year today. Yeah. So if you get that for the next year and you get to 5%, I mean, it's a 0% return. It's not the end of the world, right? But certainly, I think you go higher from here. I mean, listen, it's funny. I was listening to, to Guy, to Dan, and Karen. I, I don't know how I can agree with all three of you when you're, all, <laughs> when you're all saying different things, but I actually agree with all three of you. I mean, at RBA, we're pretty constructive on equities, but not, but not tech. Right? I mean, you're at the bottom of an earnings cycle, which is different than Q4 2021 when you're topping out at the earnings cycle. Right? And I think that actually could argue for a broadening of you know, what we've seen on the, the MAG-7. 
Um, and to Guy's point, I mean, listen, I'm a bomb guy, so I was born and bred to be negative. You got all lots of downside, but you don't have a lot of upside. Kindred souls. Yeah, so we're kindred, kindred souls, souls, all of us. But listen, I, think, I certainly think the tenure can go up. I think that's going to have meaningful ramifications for both equities and credit. And it's going to be about how you position, uh, I think, from here out for the next 6, 12 months. It's really going to be important to be tactical. So if I, I, you're a bond guy, but but from what you're saying, if, if interest rates are going to keep moving up like that, it's going to be a hard sled for equities. It certainly will be a hard slip for certain equities. Certainly. Remember, why bond yields go up is important. Mm-hmm. If, if they're going up because growth is accelerating, right, that should be good for your more traditional cyclical sectors, uh, energy, materials, industrials, financials, for example. And listen, the yield curve is about as inverted that it's been in 40-some-odd years. Uh, if that were to steepen a little bit, that could certainly be good for banks, right? So I think it depends. It's not clear, totally clear-cut, but it certainly isn't good for high-valuation growth. What was it? I mean, people were saying this was a hawkish pause or a pawkish hawse or whatever it was yesterday. What was it in either the messaging or the action of the Fed? And Karen and I talked about it a little beforehand, and I'll see if you answer it the same way. What was it about what happened yesterday that caused the market reaction in equities today to be as violently down as it is? It, it, it was tonally different, I suppose, but there wasn't a huge yeah, I, fierceness there. I, I agree, Tyler. I mean, when we look at, you know, the press conference, um, you know, the fact that they, they paused, et cetera, is very much in line with the expectations. I think the big, the big uh, surprise was removing a couple uh, cuts next year. Bang, that's and, what Karen And that said. ultimately, yeah, I mean, I think Karen's absolutely right then, because that's ultimately what was the surprise to the market. And, and I would argue it shouldn't be a surprise. I mean, Chair Powell's been telling you higher for longer for 18 months. The market just didn't believe him. And I think the combination of the uh, economic projections plus some of the stronger data we've seen more recently, whether that be in inflation or some of the other strength in manufacturing and other areas of the economy, finally got the market to wake up that you know, maybe you aren't going to see 150 or 125 base points of cuts next year. Yeah, that was the thing you mentioned right, right. off the top. It was, it was this idea that two interest rate cuts um, – are off the table, uh, apparently. At the moment. At the moment. Right. They could go back on. Ironically, we would need some really weaker economic data. So I guess bad is good. Although when you get into a certain tape, bad's bad, like Guy said. I, you know, that's Guy, Guy's view of the world. Bad's In bad. Nutshell. Good's bad. It's all bad. But I think, you know, I, I do think a little <laughs> and bit. And that's cool, the good news. Yeah, there we go. And a little cooler data would be good. I also think that. It's the rate of change. This move in the bond market has been so fierce, such a big move. Guy always talks about it all the time. We didn't used to see these moves like this. Something's broken here. And I think if we were to get to a level and stabilize it, even if it's five, but if we sat there for a while, I think the market would get used to that. But here we're like, wow, that, that, we could blow through that in three days, the rate we're going. Something's broken, you just said. What is it? Well, Guy, guy's, the, guy's the master of something about broken. Right, so this, United, we mentioned before, it's the United States. Yeah. Last I looked, still the largest economy in the history of mankind. I think that's fair, right? Mm-hmm. When you see a 13 basis point move, and by the way, this is not just today. I mean, over the last 18 months, two years, you see typically 10, 15 basis point move in things that shouldn't trade that way. And I've said this, I'll say it again for new viewers. Hopefully you're watching and enjoying the show in the first 10 minutes. The U.S. Treasury market trades like a $100 million biotech stock with one drug in the pipeline. It shouldn't be that volatile. It should not be that volatile. Bond market is broken. 
and the Fed thinks they can control it. And Rick, I can't wait for him to come on because he's going <laughs> to sort of be on, so on board. They think that they have zero control. The same way they thought they could control inflation, guess what? They couldn't. And the same way they think they can control the unemployment rate, which, by the way, is going higher. California, I think, is north of 4.5%. They typically lead the United States by a couple months. They think they can somehow stop it when they want to. They won't be able to. So they basically, they created the problem they're trying to fix, and they're just going to create another problem on the back. Yeah, I, I just say this, and, and where I'd push back is, like, it's going okay right now. You know what, you know what I'm saying? Like, like, if you think about, I'm just saying where the economy is, where unemployment is, um, the fact that savers, I, we've heard a lot of people yell and for a long time about your inability to kind of earn interest on your savings. Like there are alternatives, I guess, to to high priced tech stocks or SPACs or crypto or whatever other crap you want to buy. You know what I mean? Like so like you buy a nice treasury. So 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 to me, I actually think that like, you know, the whole idea about um, what sort of landing, they are landing a plane unless something else breaks back to and I want to make one point about all this negativity about Guy. We all spend a lot of time with him. he's like the cheeriest guy. It's really just about the markets and the Fed. <laughs> I, I just want to be really clear. Yeah, that is the this. face like, of cheeriness right, right there. Like, so, am, you know why I'm cheery? No, I because I love I love everybody. I mean, I, I love want anybody this show. to put you just yeah, in a box. So the NFL, there's a giant game tonight, right? Uh, yeah, there is. There actually, is. And yeah. I, why we're do I mention that? Thank underdog. you for asking. Because the Giants are one of the few franchises that don't have cheerleaders. I think they're one yeah. of three NFL. Yeah. And you shouldn't really have cheerleaders in the stock market. I'm not suggesting any of us are. But we're not here to tell you everything's okay when things are not okay. Things are not okay, and the bond market is telling you. Well, that. I think it highlights the illiquidity in the bond market. You know, everybody assumes treasuries are liquid, and uh, with QE, you removed a lot of the float. Right, yeah, and you basically yeah, yeah, have yeah, created yeah. an illiquid bond market, and that's that is a problem, yeah. I think. But now the biggest buyers step to. But now you've gotten a lot of new supply, which will be better maybe for the future-ish. I don't know. But, and there's a really good point, though. If you were one of these folks who are saying that we are in the the biggest bubble, financial bubble we've ever seen, it's not in stocks, it's in the bond market. People have been saying that for years and years. Well, it's coming undone right now. And so we don't know what's on the other side of that. We've seen what's on the other side of asset bubbles, whether it be in, in housing or whether it be in tech stocks 20-some years ago, and we might be in another one now. And I just think that's really important. And back to Guy's point is like, okay, you know, we hear this. I think it's one of the dumbest expressions I've ever heard, trade the market that you have. No, no, no. And the, the Wall Street I grew up in is like, like, let's trade some different markets. Let's have some different scenarios. Let's have some downside scenarios that we solve towards in worst-case scenarios and better scenarios when things are going right. So to me, I look at what's going on right here. And what were we trying to do? This, to me, feels very similar to late 2021. And that was a time where interest rates hadn't gone up yet. They were going to go up. And that's what the Fed was signaling to battle inflation. Well, we have inflation and it is sticking around. And the Fed is going to have to actually readjust. In my opinion, we've been saying this for a while, that 2%, that's a joke. That's never coming back. You know what I mean? So I think we just have to be somewhat ready to see the goalposts move a little bit. And we don't know what's going to happen. So when we pick out some of this stuff, we're not just trying to be negative for the sake of it. I just think there's some things. The ground's moving below the, the market's feet here a little bit. I think you want to pay attention. Well, let's take a pause because uh, the rise in rates is putting pressure on the real estate sector, not surprisingly. Office property and warehouse stocks make up three of the four worst performers on the S&P today. Alexandria Real Estate, Boston Properties, Prologis, uh, all down more than 5%. And Karen, you've been active in this sector. No surprise, I suppose, that REITs are getting hit here. Right. Obviously, very, very rate sensitive. That's the whole underpinning of revaluation. But um, so Boston Properties uh, talked about it a couple months ago when things were really terrible, uh, bought some of that and got a little lucky, sold some upside calls that on Friday expired. These were the 65s. The stock was 66.80. It's only Thursday now. 
and the stock, I think, is a 60 handle. Maybe it went out. So um, feel a little lucky of that, but I do still own the rest of the position. I'm not quite sure what to do with it. I picked this one because it is it is the bluest chip of the space. And uh, they were able to issue debt. They own the premier properties. So I'm sticking with it. It's definitely a day like today or yesterday or the day before that, all combined. Not delightful, not, not, but yeah. staying with it. You gotta live with your discomfort. Hey, Tyler, what do they yes, call sir. what do they call when you give a shout out to somebody who got something right? I call it giving a shout out. Shout out. Well, Jonathan Litt is watching yes. right now, yes. and he was on the show a week or so ago, and he's been talking about ARE. Alexandra Realty is one of his biggest short positions. That stock today was down significantly, making now, I believe, a six-year low. So I think one of the reasons you watch this show is to listen to Karen Wax poetic about a lot of things. Obviously, the humor of Dan Nathan, never anything that I do, but people like Jonathan coming on and making calls making like that. Making a call like that and nailing it, just like that. You mentioned Rick Santelli, and guess what? Stop we have we, no. you, we have Rick Santelli in Chicago. Rick, good evening. I have a feeling Good that evening, after, after the conversation we've just had here, I don't even have to a ask you a question. You'll just go. Take it away. What do you think? Absolutely. And I'm, I'm sure we're going to run the charts. But, you know, whether you look at an intraday chart, look at how we closed towards the highs. You run a two-day chart, we stacked. Five-year, seven-year, ten-year, they all stacked, meaning today's lows of the range are on top of yesterday's highs of the range. These are momentum indices. If you look at the fall 10-year, once we took out those fall highs, the biggest retracement we had was from 434 to 411, which means the next stop is in the 460s. And if I look at my macro monthly charts, the next big one is in the 660s. Now, I'm not saying we go there. A lot depends on the speed of the current move because it's guns hot and where the corrections come in before we make the next big prediction. But I think 460s are in the cards. You know, I think what's broken is so obvious. Let's look around, whether it's education and test scores, whether it's go visiting relatives in Seattle and finding more tents than houses. There's a lot wrong in the country. But the biggest thing that's wrong that the bond market is finally paying attention to after they put all the vigilantes on a whole new bunch of horses is the fact that the U.S. government is spending ambitiously, and that's not a good thing, whether you look at the deficits, whether you look at supply, and our guest is right. But the Fed could have interest rates anywhere they want. Normalization? Guy, what is normal anymore? When you have $1.4 trillion in the reverse repo market, okay, you're paying interest there. They stopped paying interest on uh, some of those reserves uh, in the ECB as of the 20th, actually. Well, if you want to get rates up, just put that parking lot back in the marketplace or even the balance sheet. Yes, QT. You could speed it up. You could put rates anywhere you want. In the end, we all talk about the Fed and their influence on rates. And, of course, you can't really fight the Fed, although I don't know how you can not try to push back a little. The Fed has no crystal ball. Today's data is easy. You look at initial continuing claims, the lowest level since January. I personally don't believe some of these numbers, but until these models and the seasonality gets addressed, which could be years down the road, we could be building a case on many indicators and inputs in these econometric models that are only guesses at best and not very good ones. But in the end, what counters all that is there is a slowing coming. It's a slowing coming, and I'm not sure exactly how it's going to affect all markets, but in the end, as much as I think the 
bond market is definitely having a fit right now. The equity markets aren't going to get as hurt as I think some at the table believe, because ultimately, Guy, you mentioned it, there's this self-adjusting mechanism between the treasury market and the equity markets. And right now, we're recalibrating that. You want to, uh, your name no, was involved. I mean, you know, it's funny. Rick and I, we both worked at Trexel. Maybe just people from Trexel Burnham are just prone to be angry. I don't know. But we, <laughs> we share a similar mind with this stuff. I mean, and again, we don't bring up the bond market for the sake of bringing it up. I mean, I'll take you to this Bank of Japan meeting. I don't know what time it is now. but And you're going to start hearing things from them. Guess what? The largest holders of U.S. Treasuries are the Japanese. Guess who's probably been selling Treasuries to try to support their currency? The Japanese. It ain't working out all that well. So their experiment is failing. Well, I shouldn't say that, but it's starting to unravel right before our eyes. And people say, who cares about Japan? That's fine. But guess what? It does have ramifications here. All right. We're going to take a pause. Uh, thanks, Rick, uh, by the way. Uh, meantime, corporate defaults are picking up this year with the S&P Global recording 459 uh, bankruptcy filings in the U.S. as of August 31st. That is higher than the number of filings in the same period in all but two of the past 13 years. So, Michael, you see you seem to expect more deterioration here, not less. You can go there. You can unpack what Rick said if you'd like to try that. But but let's talk about those uh, delinquencies and, and defaults and bankruptcy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, listen, something has to give when rates go up as far as they have, right? Since uh, reaching their low, I think it was on August 4th, my dad's birthday of 2020. Mm. Um, and so one of the things that is clearly breaking, right, we had SVB, First Republic, and, and now we're having corporate credit. Um, the problem is, and, and Karen and I spoke about this several months ago, it hasn't really permeated to the large cap companies yet. So it tends to be smaller or weaker companies, the Bed Bath & Beyonds, the David Bridles, and then smaller companies from there. But listen, you have about $3 trillion of floating rate debt out there. You know, 13 years ago, that number was $500 billion, $400 billion. It was meaningless. Floating rate debt means as it's rates go higher, up. you're resetting your coupon higher. And I'll tell you this much. Coupons have gone up about three times. Have earnings gone up three times since 2021? No, they have not. And that is a terrible recipe for much of the corporate bond market, private credit, as well as leveraged loans. And if you have, if you have companies that need to roll over debt, debt that's coming due in 2024, 2025, it's going to cost them a lot more to do that financing now than it would have uh, absolutely. when issued. And, and so that will permeate from the leveraged loan space to the high-yield bond space, uh, which is where you tend to see those bigger capital structures. And you do have a lot of uh, issuance coming due in 2025 in particular, and then subsequent years. So if we really are in this higher-for-longer environment, that's going to sting. All right. We've talked for 21 minutes. Mm. We're going to take a break. <laughs> We're, wake these names up when September ends. Wasn't that a, who was, who was Green, Day. green Day. Green Day. That was a green, was a great American green Idiot. Song. Yeah, that was a great song. Uh, Amazon <laughs> and NVIDIA having a rough go of it this month. So will the tech troubles follow them into October? We will debate that next. Plus some gig stocks also in the red. Uber, Lyft, DoorDash all lower. And the move has options traders piling into one of these names, how they're playing it when fast money returns. We're back in two. It's still up. No, 
electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. Oh, how the mighty tech titans have fallen. September proving to be a rough month for two of the biggest uh, players in the market tech-wise. Uh, NVIDIA almost 17% lower since the start of the month. And Amazon, which started out strong in September, down more than 11% from its 2023 high hit just last week. Two of our traders flagging these moves. Dan, let's start with you. What are you seeing and why? Yeah, I just think the speed in which Amazon sold off. If I look at the Q2 earnings cycle and the mega cap tech stocks, they clearly had one of the best results and, and really in an area that a lot of people were not looking for great results. I was in the retail business, better than expected operating margins. We know, you know, AWS might be bottoming out from like a growth standpoint. And so like the reacceleration of growth there is exciting to have the stock sell off 15% a week like that, it, it, it's alarming. I mean, this is a good story. Forget valuation and this or whatever. So I'm not saying to buy it here. I just think, again, I think a lot of these names are going to see lower lows. I'd love to see a little bit more fear in the market. And, and I think then you start dollar cost averaging in some of your favorite MAG7 names. But right now, I think it's just a little too early because the market is just turning and the technicals are starting to break. And volatility levels have not really, I, I guess, gotten too many people's antennas up yet. So we got to see a VIX above 20. Guy, I was here, I think it was late August, and all the talk was NVIDIA. Their earnings came out, and I think 23rd. that's... 23rd. Uh, was it August 23rd? Is that, is that the day? Yeah. Everybody was away. It was, uh, it, I was uh, here. But you were here, and and the, the stock went up uh, above 516. 500. Went up to 500. 16. Where's it now? 516. Where's it now? Wax, you know, I mean, I listened to it, and yeah, it's trading <laughs> below 410. So the stock is down roughly 20% since they reported earnings-ish. And that was a 516 print in the after hours because right. I saw it and I was right. shaking Remember? my head. Yeah. Listen, and we'll, I'll say this for the hundredth time. It's a great company. It's a groundbreaking company. It's one of the most important companies in the world, without question. It happens to be an extraordinarily expensive company. And Dan talks about this. Think about all the pull forward that's probably going on. And where do you work during the day? Englewood. Chris. Englewood. Chris. So we're in Jersey. Yeah. Uh, so our crack staff will pull up a chart of the SMH, maybe a longer-term chart. I mention this because the three largest components, NVIDIA, about 21%, Taiwan Semi, about 10 throwing a Broadcom just because that stock got whacked today. And you're seeing a huge double top in the SMH in terms of technicals that Carter Braxton Worth has pointed out. We need longer term so you can see it. Anyway, things are starting to roll over in a higher interest rate environment. Guess what matters? Valuations. All right. We've got to take a break here. A lot more fast to come. Here's what's coming up next. Is the jig up for gig stocks? Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash not delivering gains today. So after a rough month, can these names pull a U-turn? Plus, the pen is mightier than the sword. 
The latest on negotiations between Hollywood writers and studios. What a potential agreement could mean for media stocks. Ahead, you're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. I won't let my active psoriatic arthritis joint symptoms define me. Emerge as you. Tremphia guselkumab is proven to significantly reduce joint pain, stiffness, and swelling in adults with active psoriatic arthritis. Some patients even reported less fatigue as assessed by survey one week prior. Results may vary. Tremphia is taken by injection six times a year after two starter doses at week zero and four. Serious allergic reactions may occur. Tremphia may increase your risk of infections and lower your ability to fight them. Before treatment, your doctor should check you for infections and tuberculosis. Tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms of an infection including fever, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough. Tell your doctor if you had a vaccine or plan to. Emerge as you. Learn more about Tremphia, including important safety information, at tremphia.com or call 1-877-578-3527. See our ad in Food & Wine magazine. For patients prescribed Tremphia, cost support may be available. Welcome back to Fast Money. Some gig stocks mm. taking it on the chin today. Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, unable to deliver the gains. The move lower, adding to an already rough month for the group. Lyft leading the losses down more than 12% in September. Dan, Lyft is your acronym. It says it's in, it's in there. I, and part of it is, and we're going to talk about this later, I just think that at this point they just have to sell themselves. I mean, like literally, as a standalone, it's not a business that's going to be profitable anytime soon. So I just think the gig economy stocks Who in buys general. Them? Who would buy them? A Google for the data. I mean, th yeah. there's a whole host of things. If you think about it, they, you know, Waymo. And if you're going to deploy yeah. robo-taxi fleets, okay. you need a brand to do okay. it with. And everything. But that's, that's for another conversation. I just feel like, you know, Instacart breaking the way it did. Um, if you are unprofitable and you don't have a in this environment, that that was the story, again, back to late 2021. Those are the things that got hit really hard, and they're getting hit again. All right, let's um, move in an Uber, hailing the interest of options traders like that one. One trader laying out a play on the name. Mike Coe has the action. Hey, Mike. Yeah, Uber traded more than two times its average daily volume. Calls out pace puts, actually, by over two to one. And the trade that caught my eye, the November 37 and a half, risk reversal. They were buying those 47 and a half calls financed in part by selling the 37 and a half puts. That means that they could either get long at 37 and a half, down about 16%, or up at 47 and a half, a price that the stock actually touched earlier this week. I think this is probably a replacement for equity. All right, there you go. For more, op there's the trade for you. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full program tomorrow night at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. I will be there. Hope you will join us. Coming up, the ink is not dry yet, but reports that writers and studios are putting pen to paper, nearing a deal to end the strike that has gone on for months. A top media analyst will join us next to lay out how media stocks could react. Plus, Valero hitting all-time highs, so can the energy stock keep pumping higher? We will debate that refiner when Fast Money returns. Welcome back, everybody, to Fast Money. Stocks dropping for a third straight day as Treasury yields continue to rise. The Dow down 370 points. The S&P off 1.6%. Worst day since March. NASDAQ leading the losses down 1.8%. All three indexes closing at multi-month lows. How about that? Mm. A check on some of the recent IPOs. Clavio 
uh, I, I pronounced it right, believe it or not, gaining 3% on its second day of trading, uh, both Arm and Instacart below their IPO prices. How quickly did that happen during the session? Uh, though they did manage to close above those levels when all was said and done. An encouraging development today in Hollywood to tell you about. Sources telling CNBC that studios and writers are nearing an agreement to end the WGA strike, which started way back in May. CNBC's Julia Borston has the very latest. How close, Julia, are the two to a deal? This has been talked about all day long. Are we inching closer now? Well, my understanding is that the talks are still on ongoing right now. This is the second day of very productive talks. Yesterday, I heard a lot of chatter that was very optimistic. And one of my sources said to me, gee, this is the first time I've heard optimism since the strike began on May 2nd. So a lot of hope. But people are also afraid to say anything too official because they don't want to have anything that's said uh, officially or publicly in any way impact the potential for there actually to be a deal right now. And I would say, Tyler, it really feels like both sides are really eager to find a compromise. There are some key sticking points, some key issues they need to resolve, including um, how much uh, the writers would be compensated around success in streaming. They seem to have some understanding that there would be a bonus for streaming success, streaming success but it, what exactly that looks like, we'll have to see. And then also, Tyler, this question of AI. Um, uh, reportedly, the AMPTP, the Alliance of Studios, has said they're fine if writers use AI in their work without that impacting their compensation, sort of use it as a brainstorming tool. But what the writers really want is protection for their content to make sure their content is not used to train AI. So we'll see how the studios respond to that. So, Julia, what happened? What changed? I think, I think time passed, Tyler. I think both sides really understood that if they didn't come to an agreement in the next couple of weeks, it was possible that nothing would happen until the beginning of next year. The studios are seeing not only is their fall TV schedule impacted, but not having writers and actors around to promote their films is really starting to have an impact on the box office. And they just want to get things resolved so they could really get things back to work and not have even more impact on the release schedule of films next year. Because remember, the writers are the first First, uh, the first group that needs to be resolved. And then after that, they need to come to an agreement with the Screen Actors Guild. But the understanding is whatever deal they make with the writers could potentially create a template for an agreement yeah, with the actors. And, and, and with the actors, they got to deal with the nanny. we got to deal with Fran Drescher. <laughs> Karen, you wanted to jump yeah, in. Yeah, Julie, I had a question for you. Do you. Whose benefit do you think it is to have this strike have gone on? I mean, both sides are feeling pain, which I guess brought them to the table. I don't know why they didn't come to the table, both sides, right at the beginning and avoid the pain for each of them, but here we are. Who benefits now from it dragging out longer? I don't think anyone at this point benefits from it dragging out longer. And certainly the writers have never benefited from this strike happening. And what they really want is to create a structure to make sure they're compensated fairly for this next technological wave. I think who has benefited the most, I would really sort of rephrase that as who has been hurt the least. Companies such as Netflix, which have more international exposure, which can release new series at whatever cadence they want, which can choose to promote old shows the way that Netflix has been resurfacing suits, those are the ones that are best positioned because you can keep on doing production um, in, in many markets overseas. So I think Netflix has in many ways really been best positioned for this um, and perhaps hurt the least, although I would say uh, I would say no one is really winning from this strike scenario. 
All right, Julia, thanks very much. And let's get uh, more on the stakes for Hollywood from Paul Daguerrebedian. Uh, he is the Comscore's senior media analyst. Paul, good as always to see you. Uh, how much did this cost Hollywood? How much did it cost the studios? Well, the longer it goes on, the cost becomes exponentially greater and the more profound the impact is on the bottom line. And certainly in our Comscore data, we saw that we had an amazing summer at the box office, meaning that people want to go to the theater. They also want to watch streaming, but you have to have new content to feed that machine. And I think that the longer this goes on, and hopefully this is very encouraging today, that if the writer's strike can get resolved, and as Julia said, it can provide a template for SAG-AFTRA, hopefully that gets resolved before the uh, end of October, by the end of the year at least. But it really, the cost right now is in terms of what can it cost in the future if movies and television shows are not produced. The box office moves rather slowly. In other words, it takes a long time to get a movie written, produced, and distributed, and marketed. Uh, so we got enough films in the pipeline to the end of the year and a little bit beyond that. But as has been said, without actors able to go out and market those films and promote them, that puts a damper on the potential box office. So did the did the the move of a couple of performers to either say they were going to maybe go back to work and and produce yeah. I'm thinking of Bill Maher and there were a couple yeah. of others who were in that boat. Do you think that was the nudge that made the WGA move closer toward it, negotiations? It may have been. That's a great question, because I think as time goes on, just the pressure keeps mounting. And remember, this impacts people beyond the writers and the actors, those who work above and below the line uh, in ancillary jobs that are related to movie and television production. So it, the effect is being mm -hmm. felt not just in the entertainment industry and in Hollywood, but well beyond that and worldwide. So it's great if this can get resolved to an equitable conclusion that all the parties are happy and that it can lead to a resolution of the actor strike as well. I don't mean to put words in Julia's mouth, or maybe I'm not recalling them exactly <laughs> correctly, but it seemed as though she said that or indicated that of all the producers, Netflix may have emerged from this the least hurt. Is there one producer that is the most hurt here? Well, I think that those who rely on brand new content and not archival types of content, meaning movie theaters, really rely on brand new movies every week to bring people in. As we all know, Taylor Swift has her concert film coming out, which is the music music to the exhibitors' ears, theater owners' ears in uh, mid-October, but I think it really is those, those movie studios who really want to get this back on track. Streamers often have you know, a huge library of older titles and older movies, but they also need brand new content as well. Series that were in production before the strikes right. that have a new season coming up, they definitely want to get those <clears throat> things moving. Hopefully this gets resolved uh, sooner than later. I want to squeeze in one more quick question and yeah. one more quick answer. The, the news today that uh, Rupert Murdoch is stepping aside to become chairman emeritus, among other things, at, at uh, yeah. Fox. Who got the better end of the Fox, 21st Century Fox <laughs> deal? Was it Iger or was it Murdoch? Because right now yeah. <laughs> it looks like Murdoch sold at the top and got the better end of it. 
I think that's part of it. But also, you know, there are many other factors involved in that. I don't know that I have a quick answer for you, Tyler, on that. I just think that the bottom line is, is that these media companies, you know, they, they rely on talent, writers, right. actors, but the actors and writers rely on the studios as well. So look what happens when that all works in sync. You get something like Barbenheimer. When all things are firing, you know, when the industry is firing on all cylinders, I don't know if I really answered your question, but I think no question that this is great if these uh, strikes can be resolved, uh, hopefully, you know, today or tomorrow and maybe over the next month for the actors strike. We hope. All right. Paul, thanks very much. Paul DeGarabedian, we appreciate it. Karen, thank you. Yeah, well, so I'm long Netflix. I've been looking to buy some more. I bought some more a couple days ago, which was too early. I bought some more yesterday. I do think they're in the sort of pole position, regardless of how this gets resolved. When you think about the streaming wars and how much it's cost everybody and how everyone's kind of rethinking it, except for Netflix. They have the balance sheet now. They've been able to do content. They're around the world. So uh, I think they're, I mean, sitting pretty. That's where I want to be. Quick thought. Yeah, Tyler, I mean, I think, you know, uh, uh, Dan mentioned this earlier about sort of being in a new regime and how inflation is going to be uh, uh, stronger for longer. And at the end of the day, all these strikes show that the power has shifted now to the employee from the employer. And that's just something to look out for over the next, you know, on a secular basis over the next three, five, ten years. All righty. Coming up, Valero goes broom. What's fueling this big move higher today? I'm just going to giggle. That uh, trade and more when Fast Money returns. All righty, welcome back to Fast Money. Valero topping the tape on an otherwise ugly day for stocks. The oil refiner, all-time highs going back to the 1980s and finishing the day up more than 2% just off a record close. So, Guy, you are watching Energy. What do you think here? They don't make... People like you anymore, Tyler, without question. No, they also I, I go make, back to the 1980s. Yeah, as, as do I. They yeah. don't make refineries anymore, as it turns out. And <laughs> I don't want to get too in the weeds here, but crack spreads, which is how they make money, are in their favor right now. And look at what's going on with diesel. Look at what's going on with the products. It made an all-time high today, as you said. And guess what? I still think it has room to the upside. The energy space still works, Tyler. All right. Uh, coming up, a major merger on the street. Cisco buying Splunk has got us thinking, who else should merge? We will play matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match next. More Fast Money in two. We see more threats on a daily basis than most every security company out there. And they have the SIM platform that is actually the backbone of security operations centers in all of our customers. When you bring that together, with all the insights that our customers can see coming out of their network infrastructure, out of the internet connections, out of the home offices, and then you layer AI on top of that, we can help customers literally move from detection and response to predictive and prevention and prediction, prediction and prevention. That was Cisco CEO Chuck Robbins on why buying Splunk made sense for that networking giant. Cisco announcing this morning that it's going to buy the cybersecurity firm for $28 billion. Uh, The prospect of that deal got us to thinking this would be a perfect time to play a little game of matchmaker. Who should buy whom right now? 
Dan, why don't you kick things off here? Who, who's in your? Well, you know, Karen just talked about Netflix and their balance sheet and how they're winning certain aspects of the streaming game. I think they should, like, integrate horizontally a little bit. I think they should take a look at Spotify. You look at uh, Netflix as a company that has, you know, expected to have 30% gap earnings growth year over year. Next year, trades about 25 times. And you think of that balance sheet and you look at their positioning. I think they should take a look at Spot. And Spot's a company that has had 25% margins. You'd think, look at these companies and say they're kind of similar, right, in a lot of ways. And if you think about how all the streaming wars are going, I think the idea of bundling things, uh, you know, across a spectrum makes a lot of sense. So to me, I think they get those 25% margins up towards their 40%. That's where Netflix is or so. I think that would make a lot of sense, that combination. Um, so, C-spot, C-spot run. Yeah. What do you think as a shareholder? Would you be? Would you vote in favor of that? Of Netflix? To, I, I, yeah, I guess. Well, yeah, it's, it's a good idea. Endorsement. Didn't jump on I mean, my, it didn't, you know, it wasn't right on my radar screen, but yeah. I think it's interesting. Well, I think about think about who these guys. I, I, are. Think I, about I, how all these companies—they are competing with behemoths, and, and, and so yeah. this is how you kind of you know bulk hugely powerful up. brands. I, I, th- th- that combination alone is pretty is pretty okay, good. I got him, not you, but guy. Fine. Guy, you're next. Hi, right. you're the matchmaker. So, I mean, I've actually spent time. The matchmaking—I don't know so much about that, but Boeing comes out. Boeing. BA should buy Spirit Aerosys SPR. Stock is trading 14 and change right now. I asked Karen, who helps me a great deal on this show, what the whole in value would be. Enterprise plus cash, uh, market cap, about $5 billion. Boeing could do that like this. Boeing is basically 85% of Spirit's business. Airbus is the other 11 12%. Then there's sort of some rounding errors. You squeeze out Airbus, you vertically integrate, you buy it on the cheap. To me, it makes a lot of sense. Interesting. Karen, you are looking uh, more for a divorce. I'm not, I yes. don't mean to get personal here. No, no. Uh, I'm, sure that, I'm sure that's not the case. But uh, what, do you, what do you have in mind? Well, I'm just looking at one where maybe they were like, oh, maybe we shouldn't have done that. Yeah. Mm. And I'm thinking of Tapestry Capri. Now, I was a, share, a shareholder in Capri, so I was delighted with the match. But in hindsight, looking where things are today versus August 10th, I think, when the deal was announced. So consumers under a little bit more stress. The high-end luxury stocks have also come under quite a bit of stress. And this was an all-cash deal, $8 billion of debt they're going to take on. Interest rates have moved, and not an insignificant amount. So put all those three things together. It might want to make them not so delighted. However, this is a tight merger agreement. I don't see that it getting out of this. Any, any thoughts here? Any reaction on that one? No. We'll, we'll move on then. Uh, I love uh, their shoes, though. We've talked about Jimmy Choo's shoes for years. Tapestry. No, well, let me just say quickly, tapestry, this is the more know. you know. Don't we have that graphic? Uh, we got to go quick. Jimmy yeah. Choo's shoes, very narrow, by the way. If you have wide feet, don't buy them. Back to you. <laughs> All right. Thank you. <laughs> Newsflash. Breaking news. Up next, we got some final trades. We've been through a lot in our countries. High inflation, our governments have changed a lot. Um, and many times entrepreneurship is a necessity because we can't get a job in, in Latin America. And I would say, you know, my advice is just go for it. Just go for it. Just like maybe your parents did and your grandparents did back home. And once you make it, lift somebody else up. I don't go till you wave your finger at me. You, you got to tell me, come well, on. Tell people who that is. All right. Oh, yeah. That's Nancy. 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 Florida right there. She does an amazing job. Wave your finger. You can sit there. And all okay. in the, time for the final <laughs> trade. Let's go around the horn. Michael, you first. Um, implied volatility is very low. Default risk is picking up. Uh, I don't really think you can like corporate credit here. So underweight or short corporate credit. 
short or underweight corporate credit. Karen. Yes, I am actually short underweight corporate credit. Um, so mine, we just talked about it. Netflix, I know it's a day like today, it's hard to step up and buy stocks. That's why I did it yesterday, but today would have been even better. Netflix, I still think it's a winner regardless how this Netflix. checks out. Netflix, and maybe maybe it goes with falls in love Snap. with Spotify. Snap is getting Snap. Down, it's getting down to a level where you almost have to take a shot so bad it's good. Uh, let's let's wait and see how it acts at eight things, bucks. Things that are so bad they're good. Tyler, it's great. Do you, do you know so the term? Good, that's me. Do you know the you. term live dog? Do you know that term in sports? Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's one tonight. I'm just putting it out there. MPC, Marathon Petroleum. Marathon Petroleum. You're saying the job. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Michael. Good to have you with us. Thanks for watching Fast Money. Jim Cramer right now. All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. I won't let my active psoriatic arthritis joint symptoms define me. Emerge as you. Tremphia guselkumab is proven to significantly reduce joint pain, stiffness, and swelling in adults with active psoriatic arthritis. Some patients even reported less fatigue as assessed by survey one week prior. Results may vary. Tremphia is taken by injection six times a year after two starter doses at week zero and four. Serious allergic reactions may occur. Tremphia may increase your risk of infections and lower your ability to fight them. Before treatment, your doctor should check you for infections and tuberculosis. Tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms of an infection including fever, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough. Tell your doctor if you had a vaccine or plan to. Emerge as you. Learn more about Tremphia, including important safety information, at tremphia.com or call 1-877-578-3527. See our ad in Food & Wine magazine. For patients prescribed Tremphia, cost support may be available. 